Hear the Gospel of our Saviour Christ according to St Matthew chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Glory to you, Lord Jesus Christ. In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea, proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the one of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke when he said, The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore clothing of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then the people of Jerusalem and all Judea were going out to him and all the region along the Jordan, and they were baptised by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptise you with water for repentance, but one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. And now, O Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for yourself, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. This particular week is perhaps the strangest in the academic year. We are suspended momentarily between past and future judgment. Michaelmas term has come to an end and the biannual trials of the essays are upon us. What this means in practical terms is that the unsung heroes of Theological Institute life, the college staff, are tasked with turning around 20 or so student assignments in the space of a few weeks. And the student population is about to be kicked out ruthlessly for the Christmas holidays and so that this process might begin. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? <laughs> John the Baptist's statement might be directed towards the student population here who have obeyed instructions and are about to scarper before this process begins. But the judgment that is coming, wrathful or otherwise, is coming thanks to the tireless efforts of the poor lecturers. And hopefully I'll have gained a few marks in the dissertation as a result of that. <laughs> we are suspended between past and future judgment, not only in our academic calendar, but also in our church's calendar. We have already heard as much from our Advent voices this evening in scripture, in liturgy, in hymnody. They call out to us across the centuries to do something extraordinary, to slow down, to wait and to watch with excitement and eagerness and expectation 
as we move from darkness into light, from hope to joy at the coming of the Lord Jesus. We know Christ to be in our midst, and yet we know all too well by the world's deep pain, suffering and woundedness that the full manifestation of his kingdom has certainly not arrived. That's why Fleming Rutledge calls Advent the time between, the time between when Christ has come and when Christ will come again. But it's in this time that we are to be active. And so our call, as we look to the future with hope and with expectation, is to prepare ourselves to receive the greatest gift that God ever gave humankind. And the horizon of our Advent waiting should determine how we wait, how we prepare. So what exactly are we waiting for? And how then are we to wait? Well, that's where our three Advent voices from scripture come in. The first is that of Isaiah, who lived in a time when Israel had experienced some pretty awful kings. Isaiah hopes that one day a new shoot of life will sprout out from the old stump of Israel's kingdom. He hopes for a king like David, who will rely not on political advisors, but on God. A king who will bring justice and peace, especially to those who are poor and afflicted. The second Advent voice is that of St. Paul, who tells the Christian community in Rome that all the Jewish and the Gentile Christians will live in hope and accept one another. They will live in harmony and in peace. The third Advent voice we hear is that of a voice crying out in the wilderness. It's the vision, also from Isaiah, that the Gospel writer quotes in our reading. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Notably, it's in that very same section of Isaiah that we read, every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. Picture a massive road building project cutting through hills and valleys to create new, straight, level road. This vision is one that seems to require bulldozers. It reads like the specification for a new motorway or a new bypass. Get the road ready, make a straight path for travel. Every valley must be filled up and every hill and mountain leveled off. It sounds like an awful lot of hard work. But we know that it will, ultimately, be worth the effort. John the Baptist uses these kinds of images to describe his role in preparing for the coming of Jesus. His aim is for the whole human race to see God's coming salvation. The idea is that everything that would obscure or obstruct sight of God's salvation would be torn down, so that throughout the entire world, there would be no obstacle able to prevent people from seeing God's coming salvation. Everyone should be able to see Jesus because there would be nothing impeding our view, no mountains blocking our vision, and no valleys from within which we would be unable to look out. The purpose of John the Baptist's ministry was that everyone could clearly see who God is, and what God does. Picture a vast, flat expanse across which the light of Christ 
can be seen from wherever you stand. And I think you'll get the intended idea. By quoting from Isaiah, the gospel writer is making clear that John is recovering the original vision for God's people to be a light to the nations. When Abraham was called by God, he was told that he would become a great and mighty nation and that all the nations of the earth would be blessed in him. The nation founded through his obedience to God's call was to be a blessing to all nations. The people of Israel were periodically reminded of this call. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the survivors of Israel. I will give you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. The prophecies collected together in Isaiah also show the kind of place that Jerusalem was intended to become, a place to which all nations could come to hear from God. Many nations will come streaming to it, and their people will say, let us go up to the hill of the Lord, to the temple of Israel's God. He will teach us what he wants us to do. We will walk in the paths he has chosen, for the Lord's teaching comes from Jerusalem. From Zion, he speaks to his people. Instead, of that vision coming to pass. By the time of Jesus, the temple had become a symbol of Jewish identity with all sorts of people excluded from worship unless they conformed to the detailed requirements of the Mosaic law. The temple and the worship in it prevented the free access to God that God wished to see for people of all nations. In Jesus' ministry, crucifixion and post-resurrection commission to his disciples, we see him tearing down barriers that prevented sight of God and raising up those whose position in society excluded them from worship. In his ministry, Jesus expressly went to those who were excluded from temple worship, restoring them, teaching them that they would enter the kingdom of God ahead of the religious leaders, and healing them so that they could actively return to worship. Jesus loved them just as they were, but he loved them too much to leave them just as they were. When he died, the curtain separating people from the most holy place in the temple was torn in two, showing that access to God was now open to all. Jesus also prophesied, as we heard a few weeks ago in our lectionary readings, that the temple itself would be destroyed and that when this happened, his disciples should take his message of love to all nations. As Christ's followers today, we inherit the task of putting into practice what Jesus has achieved through his life, his death and his resurrection. This is the business we are to be about during our Advent waiting. We are the people today who are called to work towards that earth-shattering vision of nations streaming to learn what God wants them to do. To do that, we follow the up and the down vision of Isaiah and John the Baptist, taking down barriers and raising up those who have been brought low. What our world needs most of all are communities of trust and support and faithfulness and love that show the kind of life that is possible when we believe that God is really with us and rest in the hope that God's will will always finally prevail. And we don't have to invent these communities. 
because God has already done so. In the call of Abraham and Jacob to be God's people Israel, and when the Holy Spirit was sent on the apostles on the day of Pentecost. We've been given innumerable amounts of them all around the country and millions all around the world. We've been given the church. What our world needs is the love and the compassion and the faithfulness of this transformed, transforming and transformative community. <coughs> Yet, we also live at a time and in a society where the church is getting much smaller. Those who regularly attend worship are much fewer and the church's reputation and time and energy are becoming associated with initiatives that are introverted and divisive and often lack the full depth and height and breadth of the glorious gospel of our Saviour Christ. We must acknowledge that we, as the church, have often been the perpetrators of or complicit in the sins and the ills of history. And so we need to foster a deeper repentance. Surveying the field, a psychologist friend of mine who's also a priest recently suggested that the church is facing something of an identity crisis. He said that there are, broadly speaking, three kinds of people responding to the current situation. The first kind of person insists that the old ways are best left in the past and only new ways will work. The second kind of person does what T.S. Eliot calls ringing the bell backwards, saying that we must return to the old ways. The third kind of person says that there isn't even a problem to begin with. And my psychologist friend might call this response denial. We can take heart though, because the Christian gospel isn't any less true simply because it's less widely believed. In this time between, we must not give in to anxiety or to apathy. Rather, we must be alert and active. The vision John the Baptist proclaimed in his time was an up and a down vision of tearing down and raising up. That vision was necessary preparation for seeing Jesus. But when we see Jesus, we gain a further vision, a vision of centre and circumference. Hansers von Balthasar points out that although Jesus remained in the centre of God's will by being the embodiment of the very heart of God, that led him to place himself in the most uncomfortable of places as he ate with sinners and outcasts and offbeat folk. And supremely, as he took onto his shoulders the weight of the world's sin and suffering and sorrows. Jesus gives us a vision of being at the centre and on the circumference. These visions of taking down and raising up and of being at the centre and on the circumference are, I think, Advent visions, visions that enable us to see Christ's coming. Isaiah and John the Baptist and St Paul tell us that God is seen when barriers are taken down and those who have been brought low are raised up. So we might say that God is seen through a field of vision that has a vertical axis as well as a horizontal axis and true to form and pushing these analogies as far as I possibly can we might equate the vertical axis with the north-south axis on a compass and the horizontal axis with the east-west axis, meaning that all the points on the compass are embraced by these visions. 
as our Advent voices declare, we must work for the advancement of God's kingdom in this time between so that all peoples might see God's wonderful coming salvation. Or, as John Oxenham put it, in Christ there is no east or west, in him no south or north, but one great fellowship of love throughout the whole wide earth. May that vision become reality for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.